1: Welcome to the Enbridge Incorporated First Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. My name is Julie and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, our participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session for the investment community. During the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan, Vice President, Investor Relations. Jonathan, you may begin.
2: Thank you, Julie. Good morning, and welcome to the Ember Jink First Quarter 2021 Earnings Call. Joining me this morning are Al Monaco, President and Chief Executive Officer, Colin Grunding, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Vern Yu, Executive Vice President, Liquids Pipelines, Bill Yardley, Executive Vice President, Gas Transmission and Midstream, Cynthia Hansen, Executive Vice President, Gas Distribution and Storage, and Matthew Ackman, Senior Vice President, Strategy and Power. As per usual, this call will be webcast and I encourage those listening on the phone to follow along with the supporting slides. A replay of the call will be available later today and a transcript will be posted shortly after the call. We will try to keep the call to roughly one hour this morning. And in order to answer as many questions as possible, please limit your questions to one plus a single follow-up if necessary. We'll be prioritizing calls from the investment community, so if you are a member of the media, please direct your questions to our communications team who will be happy to respond. And now, as always, our investor relations team will be available for any detailed follow-up questions after the call. On to slide two, where I'll remind you that we'll be referring to forward-looking information on today's presentation and Q&A. By its nature, this information contains forecast assumptions and expectations about future outcomes, which are subject to the risks and uncertainties outlined here and discussed more fully in our public disclosure filings. We'll also be referring to non-GAAP measures summarized below. With that, I'll turn it over to Al Monaco. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Hi, everybody.
3: I'm going to start today with an update on our three priorities that you see on the slide here. Then Colin will recap our capital allocation priorities, review the results, and how we see the year shaping up. And as you saw, a good start with Q1. Before we do that, as usual, I'll spend a minute on the bigger picture industry context and how we're positioned. While the economic recovery is really gaining steam here, global energy demand is accelerating and should exceed pre-pandemic levels next year. The vaccine rollouts globally have been slow, but stronger in some areas with the US leading the way. Massive stimulus is starting to take hold. Interest rates should remain in check, but the threat of inflation is out there as you see, but we're well protected there. Gasoline, diesel, and Petchem demand is back and heading beyond pre-COVID levels as is natural gas. The resiliency of our business was tested again with the Texas storm. Millions without power, heat, and access to clean water. We had a few disruptions there, but we reliably supplied energy to the region when they needed it most. In the face of a global pandemic and the storm, our franchises withstood the test again, operating near max. Liquids volumes have been steadily climbing, and we should hit roughly 2.8 million barrels a day on average this year. Winter gas transmission volumes were above 2020 level, which illustrates again the rock-solid demand for space heating, commercial, industrial, and power-gen load in our markets. And same goes for a gas utility in Ontario. What this picture here shows is that the three franchises and the low-risk model that underpins them drive out highly predictable cash flows even in the worst downturns. These businesses have great longevity in any energy scenario and are well positioned for the future. We've talked about our views on the pace of energy transition in the past, so let me focus on our strategy on that front. We see the transition as an opportunity on several fronts, and here's why. First, global energy demand is going up, led by Asia and developing nations. We think that North America's tremendous low-cost resource potential, combined with a clear pathway to reducing emissions, will be a true differentiator in terms of supplying reliable energy to feed global energy growth. That's why we're focused on expanding export infrastructure, I'll come back to that later. For us, reducing emissions provides an opportunity by modernizing our assets. We've developed a strong renewables platform with a big portfolio of opportunity. We're excited about the next frontier of low carbon growth as well. And the one thing that's common to these opportunities on low carbon is transportation, distribution, and storage. So our assets will remain critical. And the key to being a differentiated service provider in the future is leading on ESG, which is foundational to how we've operated the business for many years. Moving to the priorities update, starting with strengthening the base. Good progress on the regulatory front. The settlements we reached actually on the three largest gas pipes added roughly 160 million of EBITDA and in Q1 we landed three more settlements. On the liquids mainline we're through the evidentiary part of the CER's review and oral hearings will begin on May 19th so we expect a decision this year, we continue to have strong customer support, and that's because our offering provides the toll and capacity certainty that they want. And contracting, let's remember, will assure a strong demand pull for Western Canadian barrels for a long time. Another source of growth is productivity. Last year, we delivered on the 300 million we promised, and we're on track for another 100 this year. I think there's more to be had here and digital technology will play a big role in unlocking more value. And recall that the vast majority of our revenues, we show this on the chart here, have inflation escalators or contracted toll growth, so there's further built-in EBITDA upside. Our second priority is executing our secured capital program. So you see our updated chart here. We've got $17 billion underway, which drives $2 billion-plus in annual EBITDA, growth through 2023. Projects uh, cover the gambit here from gas, liquids, and renewables with low commercial risk underpinnings. We expect to put roughly 10 billion in the ground this year, the largest project being line three in the US. So 2021, which is the bottom line of this chart, is really a pivotal year for us. We'll put a major portion of our capital program behind us, and we'll be in less capital intensive mode after that. The capital will drive DCF and DPS growth and we'll have a lot of financial flexibility to extend growth beyond 2023. On to the program itself and gas transmission. Three billion of our five billion three year program is slated for this year. And most of that is in our BC system and Texas Eastern modernization. We've completed all five compressors now on the BCT South expansion, and the first two loops are done on Spruce Ridge. Both of those should be ready in Q4. In the gas utility, everyone knows that new home demand is up, so we're nicely on track to add 45,000 customers this year. On renewables, we're well into construction on our two large offshore wind projects in France. We're getting ready to stand up the first turbines on Saint Nazaire and foundations are underway at FECOM. So good progress on those and those two wind firms should be in service in 22 and 23. On to liquids in line three. The Minnesota program, as you know, came in as planned and uh, we paused construction now for spring thaw, but the station work will continue. Pipeline construction will ramp back up in early June. So we're on track to hit our Q4 in-service target. Community support continues to be very strong here, and one of the success stories is the collaboration with local tribes on the cultural survey, environmental measures that we worked on with them, and our economic partnership. We've not only hired hundreds of local members to help build this segment, but the tribal business opportunities have hit $180 million well, what we thought we would achieve. Once the U.S. segment is in service, we'll start collecting the 93.5 cent per barrel surcharge on mainline volume. And that translates to about 200 million in Q4 this year, and that should ramp up further in 22. Moving to Line 5 and the associated Great Lakes Tunnel. Now, it's important to remember how Line 5 originally came about. It was built in 1953, to avoid moving crude on the water. The 540,000 barrels per day that we moved is essential to Michigan and the entire region. It heats homes, fuels airports, and provides petchem feedstock that industry and consumers ultimately rely on. And you get a sense of that uh, with the picture we're showing here with all of the attachments to key markets. The pipeline is the safest way to get that energy to the region. There's no practical alternative and that's been studied over and over by independent experts including the state's own report in 2017. Even if they were available, adding trains, trucks and barges doesn't make sense, especially from an environmental and safety point of view, not to mention reliability and higher consumer costs. We understand the need to protect the Great Lakes and that's why we've committed to build the tunnel, to reduce the risk to as near zero as humanly possible. And just to reiterate, we intend to continue to operate the line and certainly we're in compliance with the easement and the law. FIMSA has validated the safety of the line and both the court and the state have agreed with that as recently as last year. The courts are reviewing the state's challenge to the pipeline and that's going to take a while so no decisions in our view are imminent. Affected parties, including surrounding states, industry and governments are supporting our position. And we've finally been able to re-engage the state through the court ordered mediation. Now the obvious solution here again is the tunnel, which we've been moving forward on diligently despite these challenges from from the state. We filed regulatory applications uh, on the tunnel and we've received one and the other two are in progress. We finally uh, we finalized the design, and we're now bidding out construction. The next slide brings all of what I've said so far together in our three-year outlook. Embedded revenue, productivity, and optimization measures will drive one to two percent annual DCF per share growth. The secured program adds another four to five, so call it five to seven percent growth through 2023 on average. Beginning in 22, the increased EBITDA from these two categories should give us five to six billion of invested investable capacity annually. So that's the story through 2023. So let's summarize the growth hopper beyond that. This map you see here, inventories are organic opportunities set across the footprint. I won't go through each of these, of course, but there's two main takeaways. First, our diversity and positioning of assets gives us multiple avenues to grow, whether it's liquids, gas transmission, gas utility, and gaining more traction, renewables. Second, a good chunk of our organic capital is rateable. Gas utility growth at one to one and a half billion a year, gas transmission, call it one billion or more, and low capital intensity expansions on our liquid system. There's enough organic opportunity in the hopper to absorb most of the five to six billion of capacity. On that though, we'll be disciplined on how we allocate capital between businesses and other options, including share buybacks. Colin will take you through how we'll prioritize that in a minute, but here's a, a bit of a flavor for the opportunity set first. On exports, we've got great connectivity to low cost supply, for both liquids and natural gas. On the crude side, our heavy oil full path from Western Canada to the Gulf allows us to capitalize on growing heavy demand and, of course, the declining global heavy supply outlook for heavy. We're developing a terminal to aggregate barrels and provide bundle full path service to the Gulf. Interest is building on our Houston terminal, and we recently acquired prime storage assets that link to our Cushing position and we will leverage the seaway distribution system into the Gulf refineries. SPOT is moving along. There's an anchor customer, as you know, and Mirad's approval is expected later this year. On the gas front, we're very bullish, as you know, given uh, its load following capability and base load capability for that matter. But we also see it as a great enabler of society's lower carbon goals. Gas will be critical to achieving renewable targets, and with that, green hydrogen. We're already a major player in LNG exports, feeding Sabine, Freeport, and Cameron. Venture Global is progressing their Calcasieu Pass facility, which will feed through our Cameron extension, and that's on track for Q4. We're set to supply the Plaquemines project off Tetco once they FID. Next decade has now differentiated their Brownsville project from an ESG perspective, and that was great to see, and they could reach FID on Rio Grande as early as this year. And, of course, we acquired the Rio Bravo pipeline project that will feed the terminal. Also in Brownsville, Texas LNG received their FERC approval recently, and we're working with them on providing supply via Valley Crossing. Turning now to renewables. Over the last two decades, we've built up a solid renewables business with development and operating capabilities. We've got 3,600 megawatts gross of North American onshore and European offshore renewables. In addition to St. Nazaire and FECOMP in construction, we've kicked off Calvados in Q1, so that's another 1,400 megawatts underway. Each of these should earn solid mid-teen equity returns. We also saw an opportunity to recycle some offshore wind capital by monetizing interest at good value to the Canadian pension plan, and they're a very strong partner for us. So we're focused on expanding the footprint in Europe, anchored by Maple Power Development and our EDF partnership. There's over 3 gigawatts under development, you can see that in the chart here, including late-stage projects in France and a very large expansion of our Rampian facility In the UK. We're also developing floating wind which will be the next offshore frontier. France itself has big plans to grow offshore wind and floating will be part of that. We're going to pilot actually the Provence project south on the south coast of France and it's moving through a regulatory process right now. Another growing part of our renewables business is self-powering in North America. This does excite us uh, because it marries up our liquids and gas business with our renewable capability. A couple of weeks ago, we put Alberta Solar One into service. That's a 10.5 megawatt plant, which will provide zero emission power to the mainline. And earlier this week, we sanctioned phase two of our liquids program. So that's another four projects along our system in the US Midwest. And recall Texas Eastern, Our Lamberville project went into service last year, and this month Heidelberg Solar will go into operation. There's three more gas solar projects on Bill's system in the queue, which should FID later this year. So, we're really pleased with how our renewables business has developed. We've got more than enough in the hopper where we don't need to chase projects in this frothy market. I'll close off my update on longer-term strategic investments in low-carbon assets. Now this is not about taking flyers, it's about developing our capability, improving out technology within our low-risk business model. And our early start a few years ago in our utility has put us ahead of the curve. In Ontario, we're in the middle of a two-stage pilot. On stage one, we built a power-to-gas facility that converts off-peak renewable power to hydrogen to manage grid stability. Stage two, which we're now starting up, blends hydrogen into our gas stream. More recently in Quebec, we'll source renewable power to generate hydrogen and blend into the network there. On RNG, we have six projects in operation or in construction, and as you saw, we just entered a partnership with Concor and Walker Industries to develop projects across Canada. Finally, the biggest opportunity may, in fact, be on CCUS. We're very encouraged by both the U.S. and Canadian government policy actions. This is a perfect example of where public and private partnerships can make a big dent in achieving climate objectives. We do have our eye on a potential CO2 trunk line in northern Alberta to support our customers' capture efforts. So all in, still in early stages on this one, but lots of interest. So I'll hand it over to Colin for the financial review.
4: Thanks, Al, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'll start with a recap of our capital allocation priorities and then run through our financial results and outlook for the rest of 2021. So this initial slide summarizes our capital allocation framework, and importantly, it remains unchanged. Our first priority is maintaining a solid foundation, a healthy balance sheet. We're targeting our debt levels between four and a half to five times debt to EBITDA, which given our low risk model maps strongly to b plus credit frameworks across all of our agencies. Second, sustainable dividend growth will remain a core tenet of our value proposition. We intend to grow dividends up to the level of DCF per share growth, which is projected to be five to 7% through 2023, of course, while minding a prudent payout level. Third, we continue to carefully steward capital and focus on value maximization and equity returns. All the capital we're putting into service here will support five to six billion of annual investable financial capacity starting in 2022. Three to four billion of this is designated for utility and utility like investments, capital efficient optimizations and in corridor expansions. So that leaves us about two billion of annual capacity for other investment opportunities as listed here or said another way, we'll dynamically deploy this $2 billion of capacity to maximize long-term value creation. And yes, share repurchases continue to be an option. Now a quick update on our financial position. We exited 2020 with a great balance sheet and we continue to guard it and build even more flexibility. While 2021, as I mentioned, reflects an outsized CapEx program It's being contemplated in our self-funded equity plan and we expect to exit the year within our target range. This project execution should create significant 2022 EBITDA growth, which will strengthen our metrics to the low end of our target range or even below it. A quick comment on uh, two of our recent financing innovations, which we're excited about. During the quarter, we issued our first sustainability sustainability-linked loan tying our financial performance to our ESG goals. And second, we also issued what we understand is the world's first non-bank SOFR-linked floating rate note as global financial markets transition away from uh, the traditional LIBOR benchmark. Anyways, I think the main message on this slide is that our financial position is strong and we are on the cusp of significant financial flexibility. On to slide 19. Before I get into the results, I'll provide a few big picture comments on our Q1 performance broadly and how it positions us for the full year. Uh, Despite the Texas storm and another wave of COVID restrictions, asset utilization across the board has been strong. Also as illustrated, we're executing on all fronts, which gives us great visibility to our three-year plan growth objectives and confidence that we will hit our 2021 financial guidance yet again. As we look to the balance of this year, economic activity should continue to strengthen, which will support a return of energy demand growth. Inflation should remain largely in check in the near term, which we expect will give uh, central banks cover to keep interest rates low and support the economic recovery. In any event, we're well protected against rising inflation should it occur, with more than 65% of our EBITDA streams benefiting from built-in escalators commercially. Foreign exchange, the US dollar exchange rate that is, is likely to remain a headwind for the remainder of of the year, but our hedge program gives us very good protection there. In 2021, for example, we're about 90% hedged on an earnings basis and about 65% on a DCF basis in the 128 uh, exchange rate area. And we saw the benefits of this program in, in Q1 which is a, a good segue to the quarter uh, results on uh, slide 20. Adjusted EBITDA was 3.7 billion, while DCF was $1.37 per share. And we think that's a great outcome considering Q1 of last year was a tough comp with exceptionally strong and largely unaffected results uh, pre-pandemic, whereas this quarter endured the pandemic, the February Texas storm and a weaker exchange rate. In terms of the storm effects, uh, briefly, uh, if you're interested, our utility-like business model once again shone through and insulated us from significant impacts. We had puts and takes around the edges, I would say, on a handful of assets, with the net result being immaterial, albeit slightly negative. That's mostly due to two things. First, we, uh, we have a weaker EBITDA pickup from our DCP investee, which reported yesterday, Uh, However, there was no uh, cash impact to our distributions here. And secondly, the impact of adverse price movements impacting our energy services business or about $20 million of the Q1 loss reported in that energy services segment. Moreover, our liquids pipelines and gas transmission assets were substantially uninterrupted and uh, sold out, as Bill says, on a reservation basis. We did benefit marginally at our gas storage facilities, but again, we've contracted out the majority of this capacity, which reflects our business model preference. And lastly, on the storm, our three Texas wind farms experienced some ice buildup, but the team returned those to service quickly to offset downtime effects. So I think the message is here, once again, our business has proven highly resilient to the most challenging situations. Okay, let's look at the uh, segment results. Uh, First, a comment on uh, foreign exchange, which permeates a few segments. Uh, As you know, we have a continental footprint, and about two-thirds of our business earns uh, U.S. dollar-denominated income, which we substantially hedge. Uh, Geographically, in our results, in the business segments, we report the U.S. dollar EBITDA translated at spot rates, but this is materially hedged, and offset uh, with settlement gains reported in our corporate segment. In our liquid segment, mainline volumes were again right where we expected them at, slightly better than 2.7 million barrels per day for the quarter. That's about a 92% utilization rate, which combined with higher tolls and improved foreign exchange rates on our specific IJT tolls, led to a strong reported quarter. In gas transmission, our results were right on target also, but year over year, changes were impacted by a weaker foreign exchange rate and uh, the positive impact from the Texas Eastern prior period settlement as reported in uh, last year's results. In the utility, results benefited from colder weather relative to last year, higher uh, rates and a growing customer base. Relative to normal or our guidance, weather was about $24 million uh, warmer. Renewable power had a few moving parts, but overall a positive result supported by strong offshore wind contributions year over year. Energy services continues to be challenged by underutilization of certain of our fixed commitments, which is due to primarily weak geographic basis differentials affecting light crude demand, as well as the 20 million storm one time loss I mentioned a few minutes ago. Eliminations and others contains the offsetting hedge settlement gains I mentioned, as well as strong corporate cost management performance. Maintenance capital is expected to pick up seasonally through the balance of the year, weighted to Q3 and Q4 as usual. The 2020 uh, reported number here was a bit of an anomaly. Okay, on to slide uh, 21 for the bigger picture and how we see the the full year uh, shaping up. Because of a strong start, we're definitely ahead of plan for the first quarter. And while we're still cautious on the pace of recovery, we remain confident that we'll achieve our full year guidance. As we look at the balance of 21, we have tweaked our own quarterly forecast slightly, but importantly, no change to the full year outlook. I'll touch briefly on a couple of these tweaks. First, we're seeing a more concentrated crude oil customer turnaround season in the second quarter, as producers and refiners advance their maintenance in anticipation of continuing demand pickup in the second half. This just boils down to timing, with the mainline volumes expected to dip a little to about 2.6 million barrels per day, mostly impacting light volumes, then ramping back up to achieve the same full-year outlook of approximately 2.8 million barrels per day on average for the year. And second, Uh, Lower energy service contributions will likely persist in Q2 and Q3 on weaker regional light demand and margins. Big picture, however, energy demand is picking up nicely, our uh, businesses are performing well, and uh, we're confident in our full year guidance. With that, Al, I'll pass it back to you.
3: Okay. Thanks, Colin. Just a quick recap here to end it off. First quarter came in strong and on track uh, for guidance, as Colin just mentioned. Execution-wise, big year at $10 billion going into service, which is going to generate a lot of free cash flow. And after '23, uh, very good hoppers you saw of franchise growth opportunities. Just more broadly here, though, you know the best-in-class franchises we've got here have very good longevity and transparency to future cash, but they also position us to capitalize as we transition to a lower-carbon economy over time. We'll continue to ensure a strong balance sheet and great flexibility. And finally, as we uh, like to conclude, the combination of yield growth and capital appreciation here provides investors with a very attractive value proposition, especially as we move into a very robust economic outlook. That concludes what we wanna say uh, formally. We'll move to the Q and A uh, and given we're in different locations, I will quarterback this and. Uh, hand off questions as as required. So over to the operator.
1: Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using the speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Robert Kwan from RBC Capital Markets is online with a question.
5: Great, good morning. I um, wanted to talk about the strategy around the energy transition and, and ask um, first here just about the business mix. So, post 2023, um, the numbers you put out, heavily gas driven, um, do you see that as being more specific to your footprints on the gas side, or is there a higher kind of level macro view? Um, that's really driving gas, and, and if it is macro, do you see an opportunity to reduce your exposure in slower-growing segments and acquire more uh,
2: gas platforms?
3: Okay, uh, Robert, it's Al here. Uh, so I think it's probably a combination of both. Uh, Robert, obviously we've got a great platform. Um, you know, likely one of the, one of the top two uh, or or three, perhaps in in the United States. So we're very pleased with that and and uh, as Bill will tell you, you've got lots of organic growth coming out of it fundamentally though um we're big fans of natural gas we've been moving in that direction uh for quite a while, very positive on the fundamentals for a bunch of reasons, you know the obvious ones are replacing coal generation uh you know more importantly though, as I mentioned in my remarks, it's about supporting renewables if if we want to hit the renewables targets. Natural gas is going to have to be very important to that. Uh, we like our position on LNG exports, and we have very favorable view of, of LNG trade going forward. Um, and that's going to spawn, I think, a lot of opportunities to modernize our gas system. Uh, and I think distribution utilities probably in the same category. Uh, in terms of the, I guess maybe the implied capital allocation uh, question there, you know. That we're in a good position here because the liquids business, uh, as you know, is world-class uh, franchise. That's going to continue to grow, but the the capital intensity of that is likely going to decline for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it will grow through optimizations and, and efficiencies that Vern and his team are working on, optimizing the system. We've had a great record of doing that so far. So it will be lower capital intensity, and that will allow us to – uh, perhaps deploy a greater proportion of future free cash flow into the gas business and into the renewables business. So that's how we see it. Um, hopefully, that uh, gets to your question.
5: So more organic versus anything where you can accelerate your gas platforms on um,
6: on the acquisition front.
3: Yeah, I mean the base case is organic, and as Bill will tell you, there's lots of opportunities there if you look at the markets and where we where we feed gas into you know, the U.S. Northeast, uh, the Southeast. Uh, we really like the Gulf Coast opportunity given where we're situated along the coast and how that's gonna feed LNG. Even if you look at the, the BC system, good opportunities for organic growth. We wouldn't hesitate though, actually, if we could find assets that, uh, you know, extend out the franchise and give us uh, some more opportunity to to grow accretively from that platform. So. I mean, that's on the table. If, if we can find a, a good uh, asset opportunity, uh, we'd certainly look at it closely. And, and the team is looking at those opportunities.
5: Nothing front burner on that right now?
3: <laughs> uh, well, probably not front burner, but it's, it's uh, certainly on the stove. Okay, thank you very much.
1: And we have Jeremy Toney from J.P. Morgan online with a question.
7: Good morning. morning. I just want to start off with uh, the carbon capture, if I could, here. Um, just wanted to see uh, a lot of new uh, good information there. Uh, the focus seems to be largely on Canada, but just wondering if you see opportunities in the U.S. as well and just kind of curious about how you see project returns. Do you see the 45Qs and other uh, initiatives kind of helping make it attractive? Or would you look to use uh, third-party capital and joint ventures here uh, to move forward, just trying to think through the different possibilities?
3: Thanks. Maybe we'll get Vern to talk about uh, you know how we see the U.S. and the opportunities there. And we'll come back to the last part of your question after.
5: OK. Thanks, Al. Uh, Obviously, carbon capture is going to be very important in the energy transition as there's many industrial processes that people are going to need for the, uh, for the future that uh, are highly carbon intensive, refining being one of them. Uh, so I think some of the announcements that you've seen out of Exxon and others are highly informative of where people are thinking about that we need to make carbon capture a big part of the mix. Um, Obviously, this is all relatively new and we're in discussions with multiple parties in the U.S. about potential opportunities as I think we bring a lot of expertise uh, to building these types of projects. So we're talking with customers in the Gulf Coast, customers in the Midwest and the Rockies as well as what we're doing in Canada. I think uh, it's still, as these projects are very early and in the conceptual stage, hard to comment on whether we want to bring third-party
3: capital in uh, at this point. Yeah, maybe I'll just add one point to to what Vern said around that last part. You know, obviously at this point, as you know, Jeremy, the economics are are still challenged on CCUS. Uh, So, you know, I think what's going to be important here, and you mentioned 45Q, I think we'll have hopefully a similar structure in Canada uh, in the not-too-distant future. That's really going to help, and point being that I think at this stage of the cycle, we definitely need uh, good partnerships between government and and, uh, and industry to move this along quickly, and I think that will naturally um, evolve and, and we'll have some good uh, opportunities there to to jointly fund and, and provide incentive for this very important area. If you look at it, CCUS is probably the key to at least one of the two to three keys to achieving uh, Lower carbon emissions uh, in accordance with the goals. Got it. That's uh, very
7: helpful. Thanks. Um, and maybe just uh, switching over to RNG. Uh, appreciate the new partnerships uh, you formed there. I don't know if you're able to share more detail on what what that could look like exactly in, in Canada. But also curious. I guess in the U.S., uh, do you see similar um, you know opportunities
3: emerging, or any thoughts on south of the border there? Okay. Well, Cynthia, why don't you? attack uh, that question, uh, at least on
8: the Canadian front, and then add on. Thanks, Al. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, uh, the partnership that we announced uh, with um, Comcore and um, Walker Industries gives us an opportunity, as Al mentioned, to build out facilities uh, uh, across Canada. Uh, Walker Industries has... Uh, a, a very large presence in the landfill space and, and obviously has the opportunity to involve us and, and Comcore has the experience and expertise uh, where we have the one project that was announced uh, that is under construction in uh, niagara and we have 10 to 15 kind of projects that we're looking at so There'll be an opportunity for us to expand in that space. There's over 10,000 landfills in Canada, and they account for about 20% of the annual methane emissions. And so the studies say that up to 10% of the gas blend in North America could be from RNG by 2040. So it's a great opportunity. Um, The project sizes are um just for for the the blending facilities are in the 30 to 40 million dollars kind of uh per project and then there's the cost of the biodigester so it it, it is a a significant opportunity with our partners and we're excited about that where uh on the US side I think there are similar opportunities um and you know we can uh, continue as Vern mentioned with the um, opportunities and carbon capture. There are uh, future opportunities, and we'll see how the market grows.
7: Got it. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy.
1: Rob Hope from Scotia Bank is online with a question.
9: Uh, good morning, everyone. I want to circle back on on the uh, carbon discussion you had there. Um, you know, maybe some just some additional color on where eventually you would like to dabble into the uh, value chain whether it be largely on the uh on the trunk line as you mentioned in northern alberta or you know if there is you know sufficient government support you know
3: could you go upstream or downstream there on the carbon side well rob um Vern can add on here but essentially the way we're looking at it is it, you 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 got it i think i mean the trunk line is probably where Uh, we're naturally um, fitting, and we've got expertise in that area. And so there's really no issue there. That's the obvious one. But I do feel that uh, we have the capability as well to move upstream. And so collaborating uh, with uh, governments and, importantly, our customers on the capture side is a possibility. Certainly on the downstream end of it, on on the storage side, uh, that's also something that we have great capability at. So we actually see it as probably a full value chain uh, investment opportunity anchored by uh, our expertise initially in, on the pipe side. So I think uh, it's a full value chain play for us. Uh, but I don't know, Vern, anything else on that?
5: No, I think you've captured it well, Al. Um, the, that I think our customers are looking for potential partners to, to take uh, part in the full value chain. I think they find that more attractive than just being a pipeline operator.
9: All right. Appreciate that. And then, yeah, I appreciate the comments on line five and, you know, acknowledging the kind of the you know, deadline next week. Uh, could you just remind us uh, how much flexibility you have in the system to move some volumes on the Southern end and then back up into the Sarnia region uh, in the, in the off chance that there is an injunction against a pipeline?
5: Yeah, Rob, maybe just to reiterate Al's points, obviously, we believe the pipeline is safe. It's been reaffirmed by both FIMSA and the state court last year. Obviously, the tunnel is the perfect solution to make the pipeline even safer. And the fact is, there is no alternative, meaningful alternatives to Line 5. It provides roughly 50% of the crude oil and propane to the Great Lakes states as well as uh, uh, central Canada, so a shutdown would be very impactful for the energy security of the region. We do have a little bit of capacity that we can provide through line 78, but it's not going to be enough to meet the energy needs of the Great Lakes region, so I think that's why we believe it's in the best interest of everyone for us to get on with building this tunnel.
3: Yeah, Rob, you know, just to add on one quick point to that, um, you know, th- that whole area in the corridor is pretty full up if you look at, uh, you know, capacity maximization on all the lines. I mean, you just can't take 540,000 barrels a day out of the market and not have bad things happen, uh, you know, ultimately to consumers and, you know, pet chems and and uh, refineries, uh, it's just a very bad outcome. So like you said, you know, maybe at the very small margin, there's a few things that you can reroute, but it's not going to make a difference uh, to shutting down the line.
10: Thank you.
1: Ben Pham from BMO is online with a question.
10: Hi, good morning. I have a couple of questions on uh, uh, the, the
5: carbon tax and curious, uh, more high level to, uh, impact uh, uh, that would have on any business, particularly maybe first off in, in, in Canada, the, the impact. And then, my fault is if you see carbon prices starting to get reflected in, say, European power prices or, or the US,
2: that doesn't, have, doesn't that have a, some of a, a benefit on your renewable offshore business?
3: You want to take the CCUS part? Yeah,
5: I can take the CCUS part then. So, obviously, the, with the recent federal budget here in Canada, the federal government is um, consulting with industry for a period of time to figure out the best way to implement uh, tax credits associated with carbon capture. And we're at the table in those discussions. So, I think it's until we get that finalized, it's probably difficult to say how meaningful these uh, tax credits will be. But having said all that, it's obviously critically important that these cra- tax credits exist, but just because by, by the uh, level of carbon pricing we see today in Canada, there isn't sufficient uh, economic value to go ahead with CCUS without the tax credits. Uh, maybe I'll turn it back to Al or Matthew to talk about European
3: wind. Yeah, Go, go ahead, Matthew, if you wanna
6: answer that. Sure, hi. Further hi ben thanks yeah i think um i think you're right i think indirectly it does the what you're really seeing in europe is very aggressive uh, targets for offshore wind being established by most of the governments um especially where we're operating so you know for example in france um about a gigawatt a year of offshore wind um the uk is targeting 30 by 2030 30 gigawatts and so um I think that rather than uh, the carbon uh, value or tax <clears throat> itself playing into our business, what we're seeing is a growing number of opportunities because of the targets and um, just the lack of supply of offshore wind. And you know, just as a reminder, we are under long-term contracts, and you know, that's our model. And so we don't really benefit or get penalized one way or another from prices or, or carbon values, but. What we do get is the tailwind of just the industry fundamentals um driving behind us. And so that's creating more opportunities in our core markets there.
5: All right, that's great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mark.
3: Okay, thanks, Ben.
1: Linda Ezogellitz from T D Securities is online with a question.
0: Thank you. Um with respect to the energy transitions that we're seeing underway, um, not only are um, certain parts of the value chain increasing in importance in services, but I think also how your assets are being used might change. So I'm wondering how, um, what sort of implications there might be for your uh, pipeline recontracting, especially as it relates to your U.S. Uh, gas transmission and some of the settlements underway long term, um, how you might invest in connectivity um and other uh linkages uh between the natural gas and power markets uh for which you have capabilities already is my understanding uh and also uh how it affects um your utility um, evolution long term if you can comment on um, how you're thinking about repositioning uh the usage of your assets uh and, and the opportunities there
3: okay that's a very good question linda maybe on the First, there's a lot there on the first part of it. Maybe I'll get Bill to uh, give his views on, on that, and then we can shift to uh, Cynthia.
11: Sure. Uh, so thanks, Linda. You know, there is a lot in that question, and I think um, the best way for me to think about this is it, all of these efforts are layering on top of what we already do. So, for example, you know, you ask questions around, you know, how are we um, – providing more services perhaps along these lines to utilities. Well, we, you know, we're partnering very closely. As you know, most of our customers in the eastern half of the country are utilities. And, you know, they're trying to get out ahead of us, and they're big incubators uh, with regard to, um, you know, any any of the greening that we're doing. So RNG, Hydrogen, all of those present really good partnerships kind of for the medium to long-term. And and just as an advertisement for, for Cynthia's business, I don't think anybody is as far ahead on this stuff as Enbridge Gas Distribution, so we're learning a lot there. Um, but then it also presents new opportunities for things like uh, the the work that we're doing with our LNG terminals or the, the terminals that we're serving. And next decade's a great example of that, where uh, they are truly out front in trying to produce. Um, and, and load green cargos, and we're a major, we will be a major part of their efforts. So it, it's it's kind of like when Al was talking earlier, my, my vision of this is that, is that it's soaking in to every corner of our business, whether it's modernization or new infrastructure. And I know that's kind of high level, but I'll stop there.
3: Anything to add, Cynthia?
8: Sure. Thanks uh, for the question, Linda. I think – you know, as Bill mentioned, I'll just add the, that we are positioning ourselves to support the energy transition in our utility. So in addition to the projects that Al highlighted, and that was in the deck on the RNG and hydrogen side, looking at how we can optimize our infrastructure there. We're also working with municipalities, home builders, and the electrics uh, to really optimize the existing infrastructure. So. Part of that is tying into some, and, and supporting some pilot projects in, in other areas, such as like geothermal or, or solar. But the, the key that we know is that our assets are used and useful now, and they will be into the future. As you know, the resiliency that our assets bring is, is pretty critical. So we are a really great part of that energy transition. Um, and really can provide that uh, foundation and investment for the future for the platform because there is that, uh, as, as Al mentioned in his, his remarks, that natural gas will support that energy transition.
3: You know, Linda, I think this is very interesting because the, from a strategic point of view, the way we think about you know the transition and what it means to our business is I mean, obviously, the infrastructure is going to be critical in any kind of pace of transition. Uh, But the whole angle here is to provide differentiated natural gas transportation. So we know where we're headed in terms of lower carbon emissions. So our challenge is to find ways to ensure that what we're doing as a service provider is differentiated as well. And that will be a competitive landscape, and and I think we're in good shape uh, uh, so far.
0: Thank you. Uh, just as a follow-up, um, as it relates to the pace of energy transition, might there be an opportunity, um, and are you looking at any, uh, to potentially acquire or divest of assets or businesses to to accelerate the transition in terms of even um, uh, augmenting your capabilities, uh, whether it's to service or technologies? Or uh, buying late students development projects as well to uh, to accelerate uh, some of your opportunities
3: yep yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. So strategically here I, I think as the team has just gone through, we've got some pretty good capability and I think we're probably ahead of the curve. Uh, but certainly you know maybe acquiring some additional expertise, uh, certainly being on top of the technology. Uh, is something that you know we 're going to have to be thinking about to round out I mean the partnership that Cynthia mentioned is a good example where you know we 've got opportunities with partners that bring value to the table. We bring value to the table, but certainly more partnering perhaps uh you know assessing technologies as we go will be part of the plan. I will say though that you know from a capital point of view uh, over the next several years we 're going to be very disciplined and where we put capital work. So I could see doing those kinds of things. You're mentioning, you know, at the edge or on the margin, but certainly, you know, size-wise, nothing that would really, you know, be large capital intensity over the next uh, two to three years anyway. So we'll we'll be disciplined, but certainly bring up our capability, uh, as you mentioned.
10: Thank
3: you. Okay, thank you.
1: Robert Kellier with CIDC Capital Markets is online with a question.
10: Hi, good morning. One more follow-up on the uh, carbon capture side. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you had an idea what a realistic development period is uh, for that type of project before you'd be in a position to submit applications. And uh, further to that, uh, other than clarity on the um, the tax credits, what other regulatory or policy support
3: do you think is needed to make these a commercial reality. Okay, Vern, why don't you take the development period and and I'll come back uh, on the second half of this question there.
5: Well, I think right now, um, Rob, it's, uh, we've got some lofty goals here in Canada to reduce our emissions by up to 300 megatons per year by 2030. And the oil sands is is a very obvious target Uh, to be a meaningful part of that um, CO2 reduction. So I know our customers are looking at all sorts of opportunities near medium and long term to meaningfully reduce the uh, carbon emissions that comes from those operations. I would say that CCUS is probably in the medium term bucket. The technology exists, um, the infrastructure is buildable and uh, the regulatory approvals would be similar to existing infrastructure where it would all be under the jurisdiction of the Alberta regulator, and that could be done in a a relatively uh, short regulatory process. So I kind of see these types of projects three to five years out where the industry is gonna, where the upstream guys in the very near term are gonna be focused on even quicker solutions such as using more solvents and how they uh, potentially change over from um, more carbon intensive sources of energy for sag D to less carbon intensive energy uh, sources for sag D but the the opportunity set here is very large and there's lots of different uh, irons in the fire
3: so I think Rob we shouldn't underestimate the you know the the need to move along on the incentive front and funding front on this one. But actually, the the other part of this that needs to be developed is more to do with, let's call them some of the regulatory issues, environmental issues with storing, uh, whether whether you store it, sequester carbon, or whether you apply it to EOR, uh, you know, there's issues around, you know, who owns that carbon in the ground, uh, who's going to monitor it, what are the regulatory implications. I think there's a, a whole stream of work here that's got to happen on the regulatory and environmental front. So that's another thing that we see that has to move along.
10: Yeah, that was really uh, the, the genesis of the question. I just try to get a sense of how much uh, other work is uh, still out there other than the uh, well clarifying the credits. And then, yeah, uh, I, th- I
3: think I think we're there. I mean, EORs uh, CO2 for EOR is already in place. I think that's fine. But if you're just looking at sequestration, uh, you know, those regulatory issues will need to be sorted out.
4: Al, can mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. one more piece? Of... Sure. Yeah. Hey, Go Robert, ahead. Go. on the on the tax credits, I just had a small tweak here. You know, I think that the the go-to tax incentive, you know, both sides of the border is being a tax credit but you have got to be basically taxable to use it. So I think if 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 policy were were tweaked to make those accessible to a broader group of taxpayers, I think you know more capital would form in this space.
10: Okay, that's a good point. And uh, I did have a question on the mainline contracting um, you know obviously there there's some uncertainty sort of to some pipeline um issues that you're well aware of dapple line three line five but on the other hand you do have some more clarity with respect to um yeah, you know, that came from the cancellation of the keystone itself so how are those three things impacting commercial um discussions with shippers or is it pretty much the uh same as the last update
11: well i think
5: everyone's working through the cer process right now um Obviously, as Al mentioned, we're about to head into the hearing. So the focus on all parties is to uh, support their efforts in the hearing. We still uh, have very strong support from shippers. We're over 75% of the volumes that move on the main line today are supportive of, uh, of contracting. We believe we've got a very strong regulatory case on why contracting should be allowed and that our tolls are just and reasonable. I think uh, if you look at our reply evidence uh, that was filed in late April, I think it's very meaningful and I think we, we feel quite good about our prospects in the hearing. So let's get through that phase first.
10: Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, Rob.
1: Shnurah Gershani from UBS is online with a question.
9: Hi good morning, everyone. Um, really enjoyed the uh, expansive discussion today on the, uh, on the energy transition front. Um, I was just wondering if I could sort of ask a big picture question kind of from a different angle. Um, you know in the, in the past you've talked about you know your fuel mix represents the global consumption of, of fuel um, and that you expect it to evolve um, along with global consumption patterns over time. Um, you've also said that you won't chase returns and, and to that point, you know opportunistically you have have sold some wind assets as well too. I was just wondering if your opportunity set, which you've talked about expansively today, um, is going to be lumpy in terms of where you place your focuses, you know kind of in the near to medium term. Um, you know, so for example, um, renewable returns are, are fairly low in many instances today. Um, you know, sort of pushing it out on the risk curve of of where one needs to invest. But at the same time, it seems like the capture opportunities are emerging, as are the export opportunities, you know, let's say on the LNG front. And so I was just kind of wondering if you could sort of rank order, you know, where you think the highest returns are today um, and where do the dollars go first in terms of the opportunity set that you see in front of you, Um, you know, Is it going to be something like investing even further with next decade into the actual LNG project or with lake charles project um is it ccus or is it still going to continue to be on the on the wind side and the renewable side
3: okay uh well you know front and center i would say maybe two or three points in terms of renewables let's let's go through them here um you know you're exactly right about the the returns out there on on some of the um, transactions that are being done i mean we're just not going to play in that area i mean we've we've been through uh, opportunities in the u s northeast we've been through a couple in europe where we've frankly we've lost and so uh, we're going to be very disciplined not to uh, play where we're not going to earn a sufficient return. The good news is that you know as I mentioned in my remarks we've got a good three gigawatts under development now. So those are opportunities where we're right up in the development phase. So we feel very good about the fact that we can uh, certainly deploy a lot of capital from here, at least over the next three, four, five years or more, uh, on returns that you know are more are more conducive to where we want to deploy capital. So I think that will be a priority for sure. Um, On the lng front i think you're right about uh, the opportunities perhaps to migrate down into the terminal that hasn't been our preference but certainly where we can um, deploy capital with a a commercial structure that fits with our own uh, you know that's an opportunity not our first one uh, the pipes uh, given where we are on uh, on the gulf uh, and for that matter on the west coast of canada I think position us uh, well to uh, focus on the pipe side, but you know, always an opportunity downstream. I think we shouldn't forget though, uh, about the liquids business uh, in terms of its growth capability. Uh, the team has developed a lot of optimization uh, opportunities over the past. And my guess is we're going to grow that business. And, and, but as I said, probably less capital intensity. And then finally, I think you mentioned CCUS. I mean, obviously that will take a little bit of time to come to fruition, so that's probably uh, you, know, not large capital deployment over the next two to three years. So I'm hoping that that helps uh, with uh, your question, in, in, at least in broad terms, Schneer, but help, uh, but if, if it doesn't uh, come back.
9: No, no, it does. Um, it, it makes perfect sense. I was just trying to think about it more on a three to five year basis, and, and that was very helpful. Um, maybe as a follow-up question, I was wondering if we can talk about line three for a minute here. Um, you know, the in-service date uh, sounds to be like early uh, fourth quarter, um, and I understand that you're you're not able to construct between now and June first um, due to the previously uh, set construction schedule. I was just wondering at what point. Um, Is it July, August, or even September, where the heavy construction on your schedule is completed, like the spreads are are out of the way, um, and and where you're at the point where, you know, the the ground is effectively closed up um, and you're sort of entering the technical and commissioning stages?
5: Yeah, we're about 60% complete overall. On the, pipe, uh, on the pipe side and about the same on the station side. The stations will be done before the pipes are done. So I think it's late summer, early September, when all of the pipe will be in the ground and we'll be working on the tie-ins and commissioning and line fill and all kinds of complicated matters of getting the, the pipeline up and running.
9: All right. Okay. So it, that's the point in time where the the cost goes down and that if there was a delay from the courts, that it wouldn't, you wouldn't be incurring a lot of costs if you, if you can make it to that point in late August, right? Yes. Perfect. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the color and discussion today and have a great weekend.
6: Okay. Thanks, sir.
1: Patrick Keeney from National Bank Financial is online with a question.
12: Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, Just maybe on line five, given the uh, inflationary pressures out there on steel and construction in general, is the tunnel project still a, you know, circa $500 million endeavor? Or has that estimate gone up quite a bit, say, closer to a billion? And I guess at, at what price tag do you think it makes sense to seek financial assistance from the Canadian government, just given the linkage to jobs both out west and out east?
5: Yeah, so Patrick, the, the cost estimate we did originally for the tunnel uh, made a, a, a whole host of assumptions before a lot of engineering work was done. So now we've done the geotechnical and completed the um, engineering design for the tunnel, which we announced in the quarter. Uh, so the next step is to go out to uh, contractors and suppliers for, for bid. So it's too early for us to give you a better estimate of of the cost of the tunnel, but it is fair to say in all likelihood, the cost will be higher. So at this point, while it's still unknown, I don't think we can really comment on if we need uh, assistance on this project or
3: not. You know, generally though, Patrick, in terms of government support, that's not how we're looking at things today. You know, obviously it's always possible, but you know, as Vern and his team thought through Mainline contracting, obviously, you know, in coming up with our toll there and discussions with customers, we, you know, we had, uh, you know, a placeholder for uh, the cost of of line five uh, tunnel in there. So uh, right now, we're assuming we we can handle this within our commercial framework, but I guess things could change.
12: Right, and then maybe sticking with the government support theme, um, circling back to the CO2 trunk line opportunity obviously lots of wood to chop there on on closing the gap on economics, especially without EOR uh, being included in the tax credits. But just in terms of capacity, you know, are we looking at something similar to say the ACTL, call it 15 million tons per year, or something potentially much larger in scope and size?
5: That's really going to depend on what the customers want. And
4: we have,
5: a placeholder project that we've put out there that would be significantly larger than the current Alberta trunk line, but I think it's really too early uh, to determine if that's the ultimate size of the pipeline or not.
12: Okay, that's great guys, I'll leave it there, thanks.
0: Great, thanks Pat.
1: Pranith Satish from Wells Fargo is online with a question.
5: Thanks. Uh, Good morning. I just have a two-part question on the self-powering pipeline strategy. I guess, first, um, is there any update or do you see any traction on the regulatory front to um, potentially include that CapEx that you spend on self-powering in the rate base? And then, second, do you have any appetite to um, help other midstream companies, either through JVs or just outright self-power their pipelines, or do you think the competitive dynamics prevent you from doing that?
3: OK, well, Matthew, why don't you take that one?
6: Sure. Um, thanks for the question. First, we're really, really pleased with the progress we've made on on self-power. We just announced these four uh, new projects there. There's 45 megawatts DC there, and so they're substantial, um, helping us reduce scope two emissions, and they're great investments as well. Um, you know, we feel like we do have some significant advantages uh, here. Um, we obviously have a big uh, electricity load our, ourselves um, and the development expertise and also the operation expertise. Um, people forget about that, but I mean, these aren't just small pieces of equipment hanging off your pipeline system. They're actual, they're actual power plants that have to be operated and controlled and we have all those skills and abilities. So yeah, I think there could be opportunities uh, for third party um, and some of those could be uh, joint ventures, even uh, you know, there's so there's lots of options um, on that front, and we certainly think we have the skills and capabilities for that, and a, a strong value proposition. Um, meanwhile, we'll roll out our own program. And and to your first question, in terms of um, the commercial model, you know, I think it it can differ. Um, there is some potential for rate base, uh, especially on the GTM front. I mean, obviously, those are those are uh, in progress. Uh, Bill may comment on that, but also, I mean, just straight up power cost savings justify the investment in terms of uh, strong returns, um, as well as the carbon credits. So that's a commercial model that we're uh, relying on presently for liquids pipelines. Uh, so I'll leave it there um, and hope that answers your questions.
9: Yes, yeah, it does. Thank you.
5: Thanks, Pernit.
1: And once again, if you have a question, please press star one on your touchtone phone. Becca Followill with US from US Capital Advisors is online with a question.
0: Good morning. Um, morning. On slide, on slide thirteen, when you look at your diversified opportunities, it's about seventeen billion dollars for liquids and gas transmission pipelines. Given the incredible difficulty in getting things permitted, are any of those lumpy projects that would require permitting, or are they things that, things that are just add-on to additional system?
3: Yeah, maybe Colin, if you want to add in. But really, the seventeen billion dollars uh, that we're talking about on that slide—if I, if I think I got your slide right—it's uh, those are all in execution. Um, you're talking about the opportunity set? Okay, sorry. I'm Thanks, talking about Bonnie. the, the
0: post-2023. Yeah. The post 2023.
3: yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I guess generally, Becca, those are all, you know, subject to uh, regulatory process, but the way we're thinking about it, if you go through the slide, for example, on the uh, gas utility front, uh, there's a good chunk of capital there, as I said, probably a billion, billion and a half a year. Uh, that regulatory construct is, you know, very well understood, and, and it's within what we call the incremental capital module within our current framework. So I think we're we're good there. Uh, on the gas transmission side, I mean, obviously there's challenges uh, in in um, terms of getting new greenfield pipe in the ground. Most of what we have slated, though, is modernization capital, uh, which doesn't really attract a significant amount of you know, regulatory intervention like a greenfield project. Uh, In Vern's uh, liquids business, I mean, obviously greenfield there would be difficult in today's environment, but again, uh, most of what he's got going in the next little while are expansions of existing um, uh, projects. So I think, uh, you know, generally we feel pretty good, uh, and this is how we've actually designed the uh, the program post-2023 to be relatively um, you know, low-key, um, low I guess, in terms of regulatory requirements. So hopefully that gives a bit of context.
0: That's great. That's all I had. Thank you.
3: Okay, thanks, Becca.
1: This concludes the question and answer session. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan for final remarks.
2: Thank you, Julie. And thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. We appreciate your ongoing interest in Enbridge. And as always, our investor relations team is available to address any additional questions you may have. So once again, thank you and have a great day.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate your participation. This concludes today's conference.